Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. This Spotlight series looks at the crimes of infrastructure, at who benefits and who is harmed in their making, and how. In Season 1, we'll be hearing about a mine in South Africa, a train line in Palestine, the infamous Guantanamo Bay prison, and a central bus station in Tel Aviv. And across the series, we'll hear what infrastructure tells us about those big, enduring political questions. Capitalism, colonialism and racism, and how people can and do resist. This is a trigger warning. This episode, at times, contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. On August 16th, 2012, 34 mine workers on strike for a living wage were shot dead by the police in two massacres at Marikana Platinum Mine in South Africa, owned by a British mining company called Lummim. Another 78 suffered life-changing injuries. Ten years later, Lundman has sold the mine and one of its major shareholders is now the president of South Africa. The story of this mine wends its way between crime scenes connecting the infrastructures of global capitalism, from the mine shafts and tin shacks of Rustenburg to the boardrooms of Ludwigshafen and London. You are listening to Material Crimes. My name's Daniel Selwyn, and I'm a member of the Marikana Solidarity Collective based in London. In August 2012, I was on summer holidays from school, more than 8,000 kilometres from Marikana, where a massacre was about to take place. My grandfather was born in Cape Town, into a family that experienced the perils of anti-Semitism, as well as the privileges of whiteness in an African settler colony. Like many others, he joined the anti-apartheid movement to which he committed his life in South Africa and exile. When I found out about what happened in Marikana four years after his death, it was partly this connection that filled me with rage and injustice. The more I learned, the more I realised just how entangled my life in London is to the platinum mines of Marikana. Miners once again on the march in Marikana, now a potent symbol of popular discontent in the new South Africa. Their destination, another mine owned by Lommin. They've come to demand that work stops here until their wage demands are met. They're surrounded by police as they take up positions near the gates. These men are protesting not only against their mine bosses, but an entire system that they feel has failed them. This story is first and foremost about the communities in Marikana, the mine workers, the women, the children, their struggles and their resistance. It is their story to tell, not mine. My name is Tumagama Gwangana, living here in Marikana. I am the founder and the chairperson of Sinatemba Women. My name is Gabsile Kanyele. I was born and bred in Marikana. I'm a community activist around Marikana. And I'm also the secretary of Sinatemba Women's Organization Group. 
where we help women with portable skills. We also advocate for our communities' rights. We also advocate for social and environmental justices. The living conditions of Marikana people, it's very poor. And it's very sad to know that there are people who are very wealthy in London, in Germany, through the, the, our minerals in Marikana. But when you come to Marikana, you'll find that the living conditions are very poor. The air is polluted due to the smelters that is just a few kilometers away from the houses of the people. Sometimes when you drink water, you will find the dust of the open cast mine. They don't even care about our health. They don't care who they are killing. They don't care who's suffering. The only thing that they care about is their deep pockets and how deep they can go under our, our grounds. On average, extracting an ounce of platinum produces 16 tonnes of waste, and Marikana's mine workers extract hundreds of thousands of ounces a year. Lundman's toxic waste contaminated the groundwaters and rivers every year of the mine's operation, while poisonous sulphur dioxide emissions continue to cause chronic and fatal diseases. Marikana, as I'm seeing it, is a rich place, but... The invaders are the ones who come to take the riches of Marikana. And the people of Marikana are getting nothing from what they dig underground. The mine workers wake up very early in the morning and go to work. There in the workplace, there are cameras, but those cameras, they never see when somebody is killed in the mine work. I mean, in the, in the mine properties. That is why I'm saying they don't care of the mine workers. For anyone thinking this is just another distant tragedy, it's time to travel to a connected crime scene, from Lumman's mine in Marikana to their offices in Mayfair and the stock markets in the city of London. The London Metal Exchange is the world centre for the trading of base metals. The exchange has been in existence 139 years. And four different... London is an epicentre of the global mining industry. By the end of the 19th century, more than a thousand mining companies were listed here, and today it hosts the biggest mining companies in the world, including BHP, Rio Tinto, Glencore and Anglo-American, the world's leading platinum producer, operating 11 mines in South Africa alone. In the 1870s, the land around the little town of Kimberley, in what is now South Africa, was found to contain the richest deposits of diamonds in the world. Europeans in search of quick and easy profits rushed into the area. Among them was a young Englishman who'd come to South Africa at the age of 17. His name was Cecil Rhodes. Founded in 1909 as the London and Rhodesian Mining and Land Company, Lumman's formation is entangled in the history of settler colonial expansion across southern Africa, spearheaded by Cecil Rhodes' genocidal paramilitary British South Africa Company. The South African state formed a year after Lunro. Its first act stole 87% of the country's land for white occupation, crowding 80% of Africans into reservoirs of super-exploited labour, which they were only allowed to leave to work in white households, plantations, factories and mines. 
By 1945, Lunro was the biggest company in a country ruled by just 6% of its population, and its ruthless manager was known as Rhodesia's uncrowned king. Lunro also cultivated political connections, including conservative MPs Julian Amory, Duncan Sandys and Edward Ducam, who was instrumental to Margaret Thatcher's election as party leader in 1975. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. In return, Thatcher refused sanctions on South Africa and ensured that London remained a primary patron and beneficiary of apartheid. Government briefings privately acknowledged that important sections of British industry would be ruined without the supply of South African raw materials. In a move allegedly arranged by British intelligence services, Tiny Rowland was recruited as the company's chief executive, and he swiftly consolidated neo-colonial networks across the entire continent. Since June the 16th, when South African troops and police opened fire on a peaceful school children's demonstration, the white government has presided over the largest massacre of its black population since South Africa came into existence. Following the Soweto uprising and police massacre of at least 176 schoolchildren, Lunro started to engage in covert operations to supply weapons to South Africa to evade international sanctions. Even after being found guilty by Parliament of bribery, larceny and corruption, as well as paying below starvation wages, Lunro's mining and manufacturing empire in Africa continued to grow to more than 1.5 million acres of land by the end of apartheid. By then, mining had become the main industry in Marikana. When Lunro restructured its assets between mining and agribusiness in 1999, Lunmin occupied what would soon become the world's largest platinum mine. But where is all this platinum from Marikana going, and what is it being used for? Who else is profiting from the plunder of Marikana? At BASF, we are leaders in promoting sustainable growth and environmental responsibility. We employ a strong corporate and social responsibility to the communities in which we invest. My name is Marin Grimm. I'm a university teacher at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. Marin Grimm co-published the book Business as Usual After Marikana with Jakob Kramerich. We are part of a campaigning network called Plow Back the Foods. We started to work on Marikana in 2013, I think. We happened to find out that um, actually BASF, the German chemical enterprise, is one of the hugest uh, buyers of platinum from Lonmin. BASF is a leading global manufacturer of precious metals products for use in a variety of industrial applications, including automotive emissions control catalysts. But BASF is no stranger to profiting from atrocity. The multinational German chemical company was founded in 1865 and later joined the Irgir Farben conglomerate which supplied gas to the Nazi regime during the Holocaust. Today, BASF has dozens of UK subsidiaries and 9% of its shares are controlled by British investors. They don't produce a lot of products you could buy in a store. So you, you, don't, you cannot go to a shop and buy something where you find actually the name of BASF on the packet. They produce a lot of components for um, all sorts of things like sneakers, diapers, 
vitamin pills, and so on and so on. Lundman's bottom line was also bulging. Lundman's shares closed the day 14% higher after it reported a profitable June quarter. The company's net cash increased 15%. Under a social and labour plan, Lundman was legally obligated to improve living conditions for communities around the mine. By 2012, only three out of five and a half thousand housing units had been built. However, Lumin still managed to pay $607 million in dividends to its shareholders and divert another $160 million to a subsidiary in the tax haven of Bermuda. In 2012, Lumin's chief executive, Ian Farmer, was paid 236 times more than the living wage that rock drillers were on strike to demand. What led to 2012? was the thing that has been happening for many years since I was born. I don't remember ever saying there is a meeting with the community. The, the loan mean has come to the community to hear what the communities are complaining about. I don't remember such meeting. They have a private hospital in the community that the community does not have access to. They have private electricity that the community cannot access. You'll find that the community is without electricity, but the mind, they have electricity. They have water running all day long while the community does not have water. When you want to ask for a meeting, where do you go? Because they, they have no offices there. Their offices are barricaded. They have this huge fence. They have this big security. Who do you ask? To my knowledge, uh, social and labor plans are the certificate of mining. So I don't know why they keep it secret. Because those things that are written there are the things they're supposed to say to the people to the communities that will help you by doing this and that. They are doing this with the kings and the chiefs, and they don't include the communities when they implementing their social and labor plan. Our anatomy of a crime scene, the key culprits and beneficiaries of the plunder of Marikana over centuries is taking shape. The conditions that precipitated a five-month-long strike across the platinum belt are clear. The infrastructures of inequality are evident, equally pervading the digital technology and broadband that connects us on such uneven terms. It is time to find out what happened on the 16th of August 2012. To begin answering that question, a mine worker returning from a shift at Marikana joined my call with Tameka and Gabisile. My name is Bogisisa. I'm working as a trainee at the electrical engineering. I think I arrived here in 2001, where the, the loan man was owning this company. In 2012, people fought for, for their rights because they were sick and tired of, of suffering, living a slavery life. And then after that, they went at the copy where the police shot them and killed them. I also spoke to the first attorney on the ground in Marikana to represent more than 270 mine workers arrested and incarcerated after the massacres of their comrades. My name is uh, Andres Nkome. I asked Andres who he thought was responsible for the Marikana massacre. I will be blunt to state that the toxic collusion between state and capital caused the Marikana to take place. What we know is that there has been an ascension into power by the current president of the country, Silva Mapos, because he had been the head of the National Union of Mine Workers, and he then later on became the chairperson of Shanduka. That got in to buy a stake in the mining operations. So with his being 
high up in the echelons of the ruling power, and he's been a direct shareholder in the mining entity. He had a conflict in that easily he was able to influence the operations of the police in coming through onto his own mining operation and deal with uh, the laborers as they would deal ordinarily with criminals. So, so that is the greatest cause of the Marikana massacre. A toxic collusion between state and capital aptly describes the material crimes in and around Marikana. The company's executives refused to negotiate with the workers who had switched their trade union affiliation, as well as a significant number organising independently, increasing tensions and conflicts between unions. On the 12th of August, Lumman's acting chief executive Albert Jameson wrote to South Africa's mining ministry urging for a, quote, massive police presence and possible army presence in Marikana. A day later, another email to the ministry called for, quote, the state to bring its might to bear on this crucial sector of the economy. In the meantime, Roger Fillimore, Lumman's chairman, briefed the CEO of Lumman's largest shareholder, Extrata, Mick Davis, who was quoted as being very supportive. Davis, incidentally, would go on to become the chief executive and treasurer of the Conservative Party. Next, Andries highlights how Lumman's political connection and major shareholder and board member Cyril Ramaphosa made a crucial intervention. He is the one that said the laborers are criminals. He is the one that said the police must go in there and make sure that they give concomitant action. Concomitant action, which that means the police must deal with the laborers as they would with criminals. Assault rifles, extra ammunition and four mortuary vans were ordered in advance of August 16th. Significantly, UK arms company sold the South African military and police £369 million worth of weapons in 2012, including ammunition and assault rifles. The unavoidable consequence of this trade and death-making was laid bare as police laid barbed wire and channelled the striking mine workers towards the firing line. A televised massacre broadcast to the world. Marikana experienced a few weeks in the spotlight, but gradually the ears of the media and eyes of the world drifted elsewhere. Ten years after the massacres, the community is still dealing with the aftermath. I asked if anything had changed in the last decade. From the workers' perspective, in 2012, the workers, the workforce, that was employed by Lonmin, it was almost 28,000. If we include the contractors, we were almost 34,000. But if I can tell you now, half of these numbers has been retrenched. Even if when you walk on the streets, there is quietness because there's no people now who are working for this company because it's almost 18,000 now. It was not a, a profit for us maybe to fight because they they do have power to do whatever to to silence us so people are not getting jobs they are closing some shafts they are closing some plants because they want to focus on the profit and we thought that because the story were 
were known universally or in, in the world. We thought that marijuana is going to change because of that, because we were whistleblowers of that particular time. But ever since that massacre happened until now, nothing has been changed. We are still living in the shacks. If it's raining, we are unable to walk because our streets are mud. Anyone, we thought that in 1994, when we were voting, everything is going to change, but we realized that nothing has been changing. But only few leaders of the ruling parties are getting shares from these companies. That is why they are doing nothing. They are doing only for themselves. It is still the same from 2012. It is still the same. Nothing has changed. We thought that by now the people would be staying in houses. But if you can come here, you will see the same shacks that were built there many times ago. They promise in the social and labor plan that they will hire the, the children of the place. They will take the children of the place to school. But those children, after finishing grade 12, they go nowhere. No one is helping them to go to, to further their studies. The invaders are not trusted. I won't say they are investors. They are not investors because they are not doing good things in these places. And after all, they are killing our people because if they were not killing, the landmen did not kill the, the people of, of Marikana, everything would be going better. But they killed the people. And I won't say compensating the, the women are giving them reparation is going to give their husband back. You can't replace the blight of a person by money. Money is, is nothing. We like our, our, our people and we don't want them to be killed by the police. I asked Andres whether any corporate and state actors responsible had been prosecuted for their role in the massacres. We are still yet to see even one person who got injured as a result of the massacre, being compensated. The recommendations that were made by the commission, Falam Commission, was that all the parties that are involved in front of the commission are supposed to put through uh, their own submissions as to who do they think is supposed to be prosecuted criminally for what transpired in Marikan. But what we know now is that the state only went on and prosecuted people that we represent, and we have not been given an opportunity to state that... Uh, there is uh, charges that we would want to press against, for example, the president of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa. Now the loan mine has left without even telling the community anything. The loan mine has left. Sibanya is here. Sibanya Stillwater has agreed to buy troubled platinum miner Lonman for about 5 billion rands. The all share deal drove shares in London listed platinum miner. Lonman shareholders, including London listed Investec, Majidi and Schroders, netted £226 million and up to 9% interest in the new owners in the sale. Sibanya Stillwater, headquartered in Johannesburg in New York, is now the world's largest platinum producer. What are the terms of that contract? Because the community was never involved in the discussion between Sibanye and the loan mean. What are the terms of that contract? Are we inherited by Sibanye? Are those rules inherited by Sibanye? Will Sibanye still give us 
what loan men promised and yet failed to give us. There hasn't been any change around Marikana, around the local communities, because we are dealing with bulldozers, people who take by force. They will not follow any rule. They will not follow any policies. They will just do it for show, but they will not follow up. How then do you, do you see a future with that kind of people where somebody is superior than you all the time? If you want to address a certain issue that does not sit well with him, he sends a machine gun to you. How do you deal with that particular person? Because we don't have machine guns in our pockets. We don't have those kind of people in our pockets to send to them. The only thing we have are papers and rules and regulations that have been drafted to guide eyes, to guide the mind that we want to use whilst they are using machine guns. What does the future hold for you when you have a relationship with those kind of people? Is there even a future there? Is there even a, a, a tomorrow? Because we don't know that maybe tomorrow you might, you might not wake up as a community activist. You are marked for advocating for your community. You are not safe because you only have, have a piece of paper to protect you. Nothing more, nothing less. You live in a shack where you don't have securities. When you try to ask for a meeting with the mines, they have this big security fence, electrical fence. In your community, you can't even access that place. In your community, while the owners, they are there in London and in Germany. A person in Germany, in London, determines where you go in your community, where you don't go. What you access, what you don't access. So I, I don't really see a future. But as community activists, we are saying we will not be silenced. We will not leave our American because this is our home. We have no other home. Better for them because they have another home to go to. We don't have anything. This is what we know. This is our home. This is our motherland. We love this place. So we will fight. We will raise our voices. We will be heard somewhere, somehow, somewhere. We will be heard. On the 10th anniversary of the Marikana massacres, it is vital to reinterrogate Britain's responsibility for South Africa's deadliest incident of state violence since the end of apartheid. Beyond Lumman's integral role, it is worth noting that the UK helps train the police force that perpetrated the massacres in Marikana and which kills people at a rate three times higher than their counterparts in the United States. South Africa's resources remain critical to British capitalism. So when officials from the Ministry of Defence visited South Africa in 2015, they attended events at Lumman's offices in Johannesburg to gain a, quote, insider view on the extractive industry and its future prospects. As we know, the real insider views on the extractive industry are the mine workers of Marikana and the women of Sinetemba. Sinetemba women is trying to give help to the women so that they can sustain themselves. They can put food on the table. In 2012, if you remember, we were going to sleep without anything to eat. But the women were the ones that were helping in the communities. Even now, we are still doing the same thing. I can't eat and my neighbor is not eating. I must share what I have. Let alone getting meat. I don't know what is meat. 
I'm just eating food that I'm getting and I'm satisfied with that because what I get, I, I also give my neighbor. I'm not working, I'm doing this advocacy job that is not paying us, but I'm happy that the people are happy with what we are doing here in this community. Even though the invaders wanted to use the patriarchal rules to silence the women in Marikana, but it did not work because women of Marikana are united. And as women of Marikana, we are saying no to these invaders. The role of Sinetemba in the communities is that we, even though we have limited resources under our organization, we do a lot of things. We do offer portable skills for women so that they are able to sustain themselves. Sinatemba teach about agriculture, sewing, making beads, as well as psychosocial support, workshops on gender-based violence and trauma counselling. Once you gain that skill, no one can take it away from you. And we as women of Marikana, honestly, we are not being acknowledged and we are not being compensated. We have asked for help from the mines and everywhere, but we are not acknowledged, but it's still fine. We're still doing it to empower our women. I also facilitate a number of study circles where I I teach the youth and the old people about their rights. I'm not just advocating at the higher ground. No, we start at the grassroots so that we are able to to say no together because some of the some of the, the local communities they don't even know about the SLP. They don't even know about their rights. We talk, we see a way forward. We talk about our advantages, our disadvantages. We try to find a common goal and then we work towards it. As in December, we did have, we came with a way forward to go and picket in the Sibanye offices to address the air pollution in our communities. I asked Gabisile and Tameka if they had a message for listeners in London. The people of, of London, the owners of London Minerals, you know what you did in Marikana. You know what you are responsible for. You know what you committed to doing. Please honor those commitments. You have killed enough. Restore these places back to the, the good condition where the people, they can live in it. Because if you go and leave these mines, these holes, it's a dead trap for our kids. Come back and do right by us. They're killing our people by gun, by guns, and now killing them by these open cast they are doing in the communities. I want to say to the communities of London, please, everything you are doing, just remember the women of Marikana. The morning after our interview, I woke up to a WhatsApp message from Tameka informing me that a child had died in Marikana after being electrocuted in a shack surrounding the mine. This was not the first life cut tragically short by the infrastructure of the mine and the ways in which it selectively incorporates communities as a precarious workforce and excludes them in underserviced and unsafe shack settlements. Marikana is a, a massacre that took place in Lodman. London Mining Company, which essentially largely is owned by shareholders that are sitting in, in, in London. So it's one eye-opener. 
And it can be as a result of the inputs of the people that are in London that something like this doesn't happen again. But if they sit and are complacent, something like this very easily can take place simply because politicians get themselves to be close to capitalists that own the mining operations and therefore can easily cause the deaths of people that are poor and destitute. The mining company, Lonmin London's annual general meeting on Thursday, attracted protesters. The protesters were demanding the company be held responsible for the incident dubbed the Marikana Massacre. The Marikana Solidarity Collective commemorates the lives of the mine workers every year in an annual vigil outside South Africa House in Trafalgar Square on the 16th of August at 4.30pm. All donations linked to this podcast episode and the educational resources accompanying it will go to support the work of Sinitemba women in Marikana. What an episode. We are now joined in the studio with Daniel Selwyn, who is the author, producer, creator of that incredible episode you have just listened to on Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. I'm just in shock at the content, at the detail. I'm in admiration of you, um, Daniel. You're a podcaster through and through and a scholar, but that, that is insane. The fuckery is insane. Do you know what the madness is, right? I think Chantel and I, you would agree, we're quite political, right? But I can't believe that it got past me. Yeah. That whole episode, I thought, I don't even remember it. All the detail. <laughs> I didn't know any of it. And the way it links back, all back, links back to the fucking city of London. Mm-hmm. Like, I just had no idea. It's just such a schooling on the legacies of settler colonialism, mm-hmm. on global capitalism, on harm, on crime, mm-hmm. on so many things. Like, it's just insane. No, 100% agree. And it's been an absolute like privilege and pleasure to have the opportunity to like collaborate on this project um, and to have been given the, yeah, the honour by so many of those communities and people in Marikana that are at the core of that episode who I have the utmost admiration for in their daily resilience and struggle and resistance to the corporate crimes being like perpetrated against them and the state crimes as well. They're the ones who tell the story and mm. it was just a, yeah, a privilege for me to be able to share and amplify their words so that more people hear about it. It was a televised massacre in 2012 and it did sort of command headlines for um, like several weeks, but the, as I said in the episode, the eyes of the media, the sort of ears of the world sort of dri- gradually drift away and the community are left dealing with the aftermath and the violence just continues. So I think highlighting that 10 years later, um, nothing has changed. In fact, in many respects, the lives of the people in Marikana, of the women um, and Sinatemba women and Tameka and Gabisile and Bongasisa, the workers who faced... Um, massive retrenchments, thousands of people who've lost their jobs, the pollution remains, the air, the water, um, and the lack of safety in, in the shack settlements in Marikana. The, one of the really powerful moments for me in the podcast episode when Gabisile is talking about the fact that community activists are marked 
and they only have papers and laws to protect them when the people that are coming after them have guns and weapons and that kind of narrative rings is incredibly like true and upsetting when community activists are still being assassinated in Marikana as recently as two weeks ago and Tombi Metetwa and another part of the episode where they talk about the open cast mines being death traps for the children and within two days of having recorded the interview a child is electrocuted in a shack in Marikana so I think the episode begins by highlighting that kind of spectacular um, and shocking violence that captured the imagination and the attention of, of, of the world. But at the core and the root of it is the structural and daily violence that the communities in Marikana have been um, struggling against for, for many, many decades now. Thank you so much for that, Daniel. One of the things I would really like us to maybe talk about now is the how. How has this been able to go on with no justice afforded to the community? Like, how? There are many answers to that question, I think. And obviously, we're, we're thinking on lots of different scales here in this episode. We have the the local scale of Marikana and the mine and how the mining company, Lumman, that was responsible for orchestrating the massacre, managed to just sell itself and make a nice profit for its shareholders and then absolve itself of all of its accountability and just pass it on to the next owner, Sabania Stillwater. There's the national and state level in South Africa, where one of the major shareholders in the mine, who was kind of um, liaising between the corporate executives and the ANC political party, Cyril Ramaphosa has gone on to become the president of South Africa and hasn't even returned to the scene of the crime in Marikana to apologise to the community for his role um, in, in the massacre. And then on that global level, we have the City of London and we have um, BASF, the multinational German chemical company that are making billions of euros of profit just from the sale of catalytic, catalytic converters from platinum alone. And I think the how is that South Africa's raw materials, be it platinum, be it iron, um, be it copper, be it coal, are circulated through the global economy um, to the extent that a five-month strike along the platinum belt was incredibly destabilizing for many of these industries. And one of the reasons the Marikana massacre happened is because you had very, very powerful people in the city of London and in corporate boardrooms in Germany and in Switzerland, like Extrata, um, who were one of the major shareholders in the company, who said, we can't have production or the extraction of these minerals being impeded anymore. So the strike has to end one way or the other. So I think the centrality of South African raw materials as it has been since the Kimberley Diamonds and the Witzwatersrand Gold and the like acceleration of settler colonial expansion across Southern Africa, Britain, British capitalism, global capitalism relies on these minerals. So the how of why communities like Marikana can have a televised massacre perpetrated against them and the criminals can move on to another company and another directorship or um, fail upwards into even more senior positions of responsibility um, is because those structural crimes of racial capitalism and settler colonialism that that, that are ongoing and unresolved. On one of the, uh, some of the research that was done at the time, the kind of spot price of platinum, mm-hmm. if you could watch the spot price of platinum around the time of the of the strike, it was going up and down on the day of the riot, it was down. Mm-hmm. So again, it points to the idea, it's the structural conditions that allow the house to happen. So it's about people at the bottom, they're just expendable. Some of the kind of interviews, there's a magazine, South African magazine, it was, they said when if Mandela was in power, what would happen? They, they kind of envisaged if Mandela was there, things would be different. 
And I don't think it would be. I think that it's interesting that we, not necessarily romanticise, but we visualise individuals to somehow be able to obstruct and or eradicate racial capitalism. Mm -mm. And that just Mm -hmm. isn't the case, is it? So I think that I get the sentiment, but... Yeah, for me, a lot of the... And again, I think a lot a lot of these debates happen within South Africa mm-hmm. and my, my focus within the Marikana Solidarity Collective in London is focusing on the London-based companies and, and, mm-hmm. and financial like um, profit and beneficiaries um, who from from uh, resource extraction, not just in in South Africa but across the global south. Those are the for me the primary perpetrators and beneficiaries that I focus my my like attention and um, critical um, mobilization organizing around um, yeah towards those those actors, but I think from uh, from a different from a different side I completely agree with you that there is a there's a romanticism um, around the role of individual leaders and the um the movement that 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 carried them and that that sustained mm-hmm. that resistance and struggle is often again this is what corporate media wants to highlight and focus on those individuals is so that the, the movement and the resistance is is mm-hmm. is erased or in in the present is able to be um like subordinated um to um selecting individual like movement leaders which ha- yeah, happens in marikana still today in the presence of several um very important like union leaders is very much highlighted on rather than the fact that these unions include hundreds of thousands of of organized like mine workers the ways in which the transition in south africa happened from apartheid to post-apartheid um, very much retained the economic structures of apartheid um, in place to the extent that companies like Lumman, other than having to provide um, an increasing number but still a minority of shares to black economic empowerment um, corporations, which is how Cyril Ramaphosa got onto the board of Lumman in the first place, is through a um, black economic empowerment company called Shanduka. Um, but it was getting, I think, the uh, percentage around 26% of a mine's ownership would have to be given um, back to um, or to uh, south uh, to black investors, but 75% of the mine, 75% of land in South Africa remains in the hands of white white, a white minority, and the reason why companies like Anglo-American, which is one of the largest producers of platinum, and central to against that history of settler colonial. Um, expansion across southern Africa, why they moved from Johannesburg to um, London um, at the end of the 90s was because Mandela presided over a liberalization of capital accounts and submitted to, because of, again, the conjuncture of the time, end of the Cold War, there are many different like factors within this. And um, so that's why it's a complicated counterfactual. Um, but the fact that he um, a lot of the kind of conditions of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank were integrated into South African economic policy, as well as some um, re- resistances um, towards those kind of diktats, um, meant that the artifice and the structures of apartheid remained in place, um, and which is why a company like Lumman, a British company, is able to perpetrate a massacre in South Africa of 34 striking mine workers and just basically wash its hands of it. Listen, Daniel has the receipts. Uh-huh. The receipts. One of the things this episode makes me feel is the idea of complicity, how, yeah. how complicit I am. 
and it may start me making you think about the idea of capitalism and what's involved in the products that we use. Mm-hmm. Just to counter that slightly, I think it is important to think about ourselves as being complicit, and I think you sp- spoke about that um, mm-hmm. on at the launch, um, Daniel. But it is always important to go back to the structural, isn't it, and think about those people that are at the top and mm-hmm. people like Lumbin. But equally, it's like. The thing that we can do as people that are complicit is harness the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And you are such an amazing mm. example of that, Daniel. Like mm. the way, like the way, the detail in which you know about this case, the, what, the detail in which you know about this material crime in in itself is so powerful and it pushes back against these structures, I think. Mm-hmm. Like we always say on the show, like we're a very, very tiny, tiny vehicle in terms of thinking about how we create freedom for more people. But that tiny vehicle, that tiny bit of contribution is about knowledge and knowledge is power like we've learned so much from you in this episode and i appreciate that but i would say i'm very very privileged to have this microphone in front of my mouth right now to even be able to like talk about this Mm. and the knowledge that i have from maracana is based on working alongside the communities there who've they don't need a book a podcast yep um or any other form of communication to tell them the realities of their own lives and what they um, uh, suffered in 2012 and what continues to happen to them today and so yeah they they are the most powerful source of knowledge about what is happening in Marikana and I think what the gen what the crimes of global capitalism are to su- super exploited um, African mine workers as well as the social reproduction that goes into maintaining um, the operations of a mine like Marikana, washing the mine workers' clothes, preparing breakfast, raising the next generation of mine workers, which is what the um, explicitly how companies kind of frame the long sort of history of family separation and gender-based violence in the South African mining industry, and that that's that live that lived history, which I think makes the episode so powerful, as well as the important like interludes where the dots are being connected to Germany and to London but I think um, the interviews and what you what you hear from Tameka Gabasile and Bongasisa in particular in that episode is uh, is a testimony and implication enough of the crimes that have been committed in Marikana um, and I think the dots that are connected between that is a ways for us as listeners here in London to contemplate and reflect on those those really messy and challenging questions of complicity um, as well as collaboration and the ways in which we can strengthen our bonds of solidarity across borders and nations um, by um, leveraging and harnessing the uh, more powerful privileged positions we might have which we do have here in the belly of the beast in the center of the empire that I can go and when so for recent examples another community that we work with in South Africa is the Amadiba Crisis Committee based on the, the Eastern Cape who've been resisting um, a big titanium mine um, from an Anglo-Australian company called MRC and they successfully resisted that and, and won, won the right to say no to mining but now Shell are exploring for oil and gas um, off the coast of the Eastern Cape and the, the struggle continues and reiterates in a different form but we are able to hear from um, our comrades in South Africa that this is happening and within three days we can be outside the headquarters of Shell in London um, handing them in a, a, a series of demands and trying to create as much sort of um, media attention and um, and controversy around that here and linking to other communities in London that are that have um, focused on um, the corporate criminality of the fossil fuel industry and companies like Shell and BP in particular so I think it's only through 
that transnational solidarity that we're able to kind of leverage our position here in the center of the empire from a position of complicity, which we cannot entirely eradicate because like we talk about with platinum, every car on the street, every bus has some platinum in its catalytic converter. If we get on uh, uh, any other form of transport, that platinum is around us. The resources from the global south, they're at the base of the telephone in my pocket or the like I said, the school that I work at or the underground that I go, that I use or the roads that are built, the houses that are around us, those resources come from somewhere. They have that material trace and that means that we are inevitably imbricated in these relations of complicity. But as I said, that transnational solidarity is that way, I think, of trying to transform complicity into collaboration and hopefully yeah, liberation in the many different forms that it has to be self-determined by the communities that, that we're part of accountable to mic drop absolutely i think about three mic drops sick i think about i thought it about i thought it about two minutes ago right mic drop and i was like no no another mic drop another (laughs) mic drop honestly daniel daniel you are a full g yes like you are i know you don't like the individual like i know you don't want to individualize it but just let us say it like we know we know you work in collaboration solidarity and it's all about it's about the people but equally you're a legend Daniel, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you. so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes, Season 1. Please follow, rate, subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform.